long before the Me Too movement, long before the new Barbie movie, in an age, in a society, where women are usually looked down upon, and he points to that woman as a model of what love of himself looks like. How did this woman, how does she model love for Jesus? I think the first way she does it is, is that she has bold love. In verse 36, Jesus is invited by a Pharisee named Simon to dinner. And as he reclines at the table, a woman enters the room. The woman, you know, she shouldn't have been there. Pharisees had very clear rules, very strict rules on who they were to associate with. This woman, she's addressed as a sinner. She is a prostitute. Being a prostitute, the men in the room, you know, they would have treated her as though she had a contagious disease. No one would touch her. She was contaminated. She was unwanted. And certainly, she was not welcome. But she seems to be oblivious to all of that. She boldly walks into the room and she stands at Jesus' feet and she begins to weep. She wets his feet with her tears. She lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her strands of hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet and then she takes a bottle of perfume and she pours it over Jesus' feet. I mean, her actions would have been misinterpreted as being erotic. Now, a woman letting her hair down in public would be on par of, of a woman going topless in, in public. It's that shocking. And she's kissing Jesus' feet. And Jesus lets her do it. And you can just tell how shocking this must have been for everyone present by what Simon was thinking. We read, when the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. But fear of rejection and risk of being misunderstood, it didn't prevent this woman from coming to Jesus. She approaches him boldly. She was confident that no matter what other people thought of her, Jesus loved her, and Jesus would accept her. And she was interested in only one thing, and that was drawing near to Jesus. And Marcus and Anna, where are you? Is Marcus and Anna still here? There's Marcus, and Anna is there. Hi, Marcus and Anna. Marcus and Anna, I want you to have this kind of confidence in boldly approaching Jesus in the same way. You know, we read these words in, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now, I suspect there will be many times of need for you and for Marcus, for you and Anna in these next few months. Times of saying goodbye 
uh, to family and friends. Times when you'll be just tired of traveling and you'll just be tired of culture shock. Times when you'll be frustrated with language study. Times when you will question, why did we choose to come to this place? Times when Reuben will want things that you will not be able to provide for him. And in those times and more, remember that you can boldly come before Jesus. You can weep before him. He understands your needs, not in some kind of superficial way, but he understands you deeply. He feels your pain. You can rest completely in his presence and you can receive his mercy and his grace in abundance. And what is true for Marcus and Anna is it's equally true for all of us. You know, when we are tempted to sin, sometimes the temptation feels like we're being stretched like a rubber band. And we want to, you know, as we're being stretched at some point, we give in to temptation to try and to feel the temporary relief of giving in. But Jesus never experienced that. He constantly felt that tension, you know, like we all do. But the difference is he never gave in. And he lived with that tension all of his life. No, Jesus understands sin. He understands temptation. He understands our struggles, the struggles that we go through in life at a level, at an intensity that no other human being has ever experienced. Therefore, we can approach Jesus knowing that he understands us. We can, know, we can approach him knowing that he is ready and he is willing to offer us his grace in abundance. Therefore, we can approach the throne of grace with, with boldness and with bold prayers for Marcus and Anna and Reuben, knowing that Jesus knows what they need. We can pray boldly for their needs, expecting that God the Father will be as ready to listen to us as he was ready to listen to his own son. We can be bold in our prayers for his people and for the people of Central Asia knowing that God loves them, knowing that Jesus has shed his blood to save them and to bring them into his family, and to bring them into his family eternally. We can be bold in our love for Jesus. We can also love Jesus sacrificially and lavishly. You know, Simon, the owner of the house, he, he's thought that he's gotten away with making a fool of Jesus the custom was for the host, you know, to bring water for the guest's feet, you know, and to kiss the guest and to, to pour oil on the, on the guest's head. But he doesn't do any of that. Simon didn't even treat Jesus like a common guest. But Jesus, you know, he turns the tables on Simon. Jesus replied to him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. And he says, a creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Since they couldn't pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. And you didn't anoint my head with oil but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Now, we must not think that this woman is somehow making up for Simon's apathy. 
Because this woman's actions, they were extravagant. They are lavish. They are sacrificial. She just doesn't provide, you know, water for Jesus' feet. You know, she just doesn't kind of provide water to wash Jesus' muddy feet, but rather she washes them herself, and she does that with her tears. And she uses her hair to dry them. She doesn't kiss Jesus on the cheek or on the hand. She kisses his feet. She doesn't anoint his head with oil. Instead, she brings in an alabaster jar and she, she pours the perfume over Jesus' feet. One commentator notes that the perfume is probably worth about 300 denarii. That's about an average person's annual wage. In Australian terms, that's $68,900. That's a very expensive bottle of perfume. And her actions, they are lavish. They are extravagant, and they're all focused in on Jesus. But why? why? Why is she so in love with Jesus? Verse 47, we read, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who's forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, she loves Jesus. And she loves Jesus lavishly. She loves Jesus sacrificially because she realizes how much she has been forgiven. Her extraordinary outward behavior expresses an inward, extraordinary realization of the extraordinary grace that she has received in having her sins forgiven. She loves much because she has been forgiven much. The person who believes their sin is little, so therefore they don't have much to forgive, will love little. Simon thought that he was already a good person, He didn't realize that he was dead in his sin and he needed Jesus to bring him back to life. He failed to love others because he failed to grasp the gravity of his own sinfulness and his need to be forgiven. You know, without a deep awareness of God's grace in Jesus, we will never learn to love people sacrificially and deeply. Marcus and Anna, look, I know You've made lots of sacrifices to be here today. And you'll continue to make many sacrifices in the days ahead. You'll make sacrifices in order to love the body of Christ in Central Asia. You'll make many more sacrifices to to reach out and to love those who don't know Christ. And sometimes it will feel like you're pushing a huge stone up a hill through mud. At times, it will be hard to love those co-workers that you don't agree with, co-workers that you don't like and you don't work very well with. But as you consider whether the sacrifice is worth it, I want you to know that Jesus is worth it. So don't always focus on the love that people have for you, but focus on the love that Jesus has for you. Never lose sight of how much you've been forgiven Spend time bathing in the grace that Christ has shown to you so that your love for others doesn't grow cold.
and for the, the rest of us. This is an exercise that I used to do uh, in my days of working for, for that other mission agency. I won't, I won't mention it tonight because it's an inter-serve evening this evening. Um, but I used to visit churches and I used to go to churches and say, hey guys, you know, we're going out with Marcus and Anna and Reuben on mission to Central Asia. You know, where are you going to live and study? Where are you going to work? Who are you going to spend time with? What kind of lifestyle are you going to live? Where are you going to send your kids to school? And it's wonderful, you know, when, when you ask those questions, how creative people can be. You know, people would say things like, you know, I'm going to live near the school. I'm going to send my kids to the, you know, to the school that's near the place that I'm working. And I'm going to get a job where I can meet lots of people and befriend people. Um, I'm going to get a job that I can use my gifts in and my skills in. Um, I'm going to hang out with people. I'm going to join some local, you know, some sporting groups and stuff like that so I can get to know people and spend more time with people. I'm going to shop locally. I'm going to go to restaurants in my local area so I can build relationships with those people as well. Um, lifestyle, I had someone say, uh, basic food and shelter. Good luck to you, Marcus. Um, you know, let's have, you know, basic food and shelter. We're going to live very simply. Um, you know, where are you going to send your kids to? Oh, we're going to, we're going to send our kids to the local school, somewhere local, somewhere we can build relationships and rapport with people. And it's wonderful how creative we are, isn't it, when we send people off on mission. And it's wonderful how creative we are when we can kind of use that kind of like rule to kind of way to say, well, this is what we expect you to do. But what about us? I mean, do we use the same requirements? Do we use the same kind of expectations on ourselves? It's one thing to say, you know, well, mission is over there, but is mission not here? Does mission not start at the end of our toes and extends to the ends of the earth? Are we not all in the mission field? Do we use the same kind of rules and expectations on ourselves when we choose our jobs, <coughs> when we choose the places where we live or the places that we work? or the kind of lifestyles that we have, are we applying those same requirements that we put on people like Marcus and Anna? Are we applying those same rules to ourselves? Or does that not apply for us because we live here in Brisbane? Because if we don't do that, it's like us sitting in a jacuzzi while we're sending these guys off on mission to Central Asia. You guys go off and have a hard time. We're just going to sit and enjoy ourselves in our jacuzzi. The best way that we can partner with these guys is for us here in Brisbane to be on mission as they are on mission. For us to make sacrifices, to make, for us to make choices, gospel choices and gospel decisions, even though they are hard and they are tough. That's how we can partner with these guys. That's why we can understand why they're going and what they're doing. Because as Christ has forgiven us greatly, we are called to love <coughs> people greatly. And that love will require sacrifice. Why? Because that is the nature of the love that we have received in Christ. That's the nature of the love that we have received. And in loving Jesus boldly and sacrificially, the woman, she, she takes incredible risks. She risked everything to serve Jesus. But she was right to risk she was right to lavish her love on Jesus. Her risk was right because it was based upon the loving 
character of Jesus. She was right to be vulnerable because of who Jesus is. He has lavished, lavished his love on her. He has risked his own reputation on her. He has poured out his forgiveness on her. And her shame and her guilt and her fear are dealt with by Jesus. So she steps out in faith. You know what Marcus and Anna and Reuben are doing in setting aside their lifestyle, their career, their comforts, their safety? It may look risky, but that risk is right. It's appropriate because it's based on the character of Jesus. In 1722, a, a wealthy nobleman, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf in Eastern Germany, he offered asylum on his estate to Christians who were fleeing persecution in neighboring countries. They named the place Hernhut, meaning the Lord's Watch. These group of people later became known as the Moravians. What happens when you get a bunch of Christians from disparate backgrounds together? They, they, they fight, they squabble, they have conflict. They started calling Nicholas von Zinzendorf the Beast of the Apocalypse. They called him a false prophet. And von Zinzendorf, he then moved out of his castle and he moved into the village. He began to visit every home for prayer and he called the men together for an intense study of the scriptures. In 1726, while the group were sharing the Lord's Supper together, there was a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They began to meet together in small groups, confessing their sins. They began to pray together, and their prayer meeting met 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 120 years. A couple of years later, Zinzendorf heard about the atrocious conditions of slaves on the island of St. Thomas in the West Indies and their need to hear the gospel. And so the following year, Leonard Dober, a potter, and David Nishman, he was a carpenter, he became the first Moravian missionaries. The night that they were leaving, Zinzendorf spent the night in prayer. He rose early the next morning and he took Leonard and David as far as he could in his carriage. He knelt down in the road with the two men. He prayed over them and he sent them off with a bundle on their back with 30 shillings in their pockets. And his only instruction to them was, do all in the spirit of Christ. Leonard and David, they were taking a massive risk. They didn't have TripAdvisor. They didn't have a lonely planet guide of St. Thomas. They had no idea what their life was going to be like in the West Indies. I mean, these are the days before mission agencies even existed, and they had no one to support them. They had no modern example to follow. And when they sealed off, they had minimal financial support, and they had no organization to look after them. They had no guarantee of health care, only the likelihood that they would probably never see their homeland again. And as they walked off to the port, they had no idea that they were clearing the way for the birth of the modern missionary movement. For the next 50 years, um, Leonard and, and David, they worked with others and they baptized 17,000 slaves on St. Thomas. They planted churches on the islands and some workers even sold themselves into slavery in order to reach the slaves for Christ. 
And the Moravians didn't stop there, and, and Zinzendorf's carriage became the first leg for many as they, they set off for Greenland and the Arctic and Persia and China and Southern Africa. So many Moravians took the gospel overseas that it was, this is what it was said at the time, so fully is the duty of reaching the lost lodged in current thought that the fact of anyone entering personally upon that work never creates surprise. And it's not regarded as a thing that calls for widespread heralding, as if something marvelous or even unusual were in hand. For the Moravians, what was happening this evening, it was a normal part of the church life. This was an average church service <laughs> as they as were sending people out. That's what they did. These early Moravians, they risked everything for the cause of Christ. But their risk was right because it was based on the character of God. It was based on His compassion. It was based on His love. It was based on His grace. It was based on His salvation and His desire to build up His church and to save the lost. This is what Zinzendorf says. He said these words. These wounds were meant to purchase me. These drops of blood were shed to obtain me. I am not my own today. I belong to another. I have been bought with a price, and I will live every moment of this day so that the great purchaser of my soul will receive the full reward of his suffering. He goes on and says this, I have one compassion. I have one passion, and it is him only him. You know, this nameless forgiven prostitute, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, Leonard, David, they're all reminders that risk is right and it's proper when it's grounded in the character of God. We're to love Jesus boldly. We're to love Jesus sacrificially because he has first boldly and sacrificially loved us. We may be risk-averse, or we might be rightfully cautious, but it's, it's okay sometimes to take risks. We can be bold. We can be courageous in following after God. I know that Anna has just gone outside, but Marcus, can you stand up for a minute? Can you represent the Hot Nut family? I want you to have a quick look around the room. Everybody have a look at Marcus. Make him feel a bit embarrassed. Marcus, we want you and Anna to know that we're going to miss you guys very, very much. You've, you're leaving a massive hole in our church. And I'm sure you're leaving a massive hole um, in all of our lives. But we want you to understand that we understand what you're doing and why you are doing it. We want you to know that we love you guys and that the same Jesus who has called you has also called us as well. So we want to we stand with you. We want to stand with you. We thank you. One person has got it. <laughs> And Marcus and Anna and Reuben, as we stand with you, we know that the plans that you're making to go to Central Asia, it's, a, it's an audacious one, but it is the right one. And so as you continue to go on and make audacious, audacious plans, knowing that our God is unchanging, He is our Redeemer, 
He is mighty to save. He is alive. He is as present in Central Asia as he is present here in Brisbane. He loves you. He has promised to build his church. And he will work through you and through all our prayers and through all our sacrifices for your good and for his glory. We're going to just, as we remain standing, the band's going to come forward. And as we do that, let's lift the roof off this place as we sing In Christ Alone.